You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So welcome to Simulcast. This is our March General Club edition. I'm Victoria Brazel and I'm joined again by Ben Simon. How are you, Ben? G'day, mate. Good. Had a really good month, but not as big as yours by the sound of things. I know. We've been at SMAC, Social Media and Critical Care Conference, where Jesse and I, uh, among other things, participated in quite a few simulation-related activities, including the Leave the Sim Lab Behind workshop about InSitu simulation. Uh, but what was also interesting was the conference had a simulation theme that ran through the main stage program where a group of people developed a series of reflections on some of the talks that really highlighted how simulation can help with learning. So I thought that was quite an innovative use of simulation at a conference. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm looking forward to hearing more about it. The other highlight then uh, that you'd be interested in as a fellow audio amateur like me, uh, was that Jenny Rudolph and I got interviewed on ABC Radio about some of the things that were going on at the conference. And one of my take-homes was, I've still got a little way to go in my podcasting skill set. Get out. <laughs> I saw that link. I'm going to have to have to listen to it. Yeah. Well, anyway, I want a studio like they have at the ABC. It's nice. It is nice, although it's still got a lot of 70s and 80s retro furniture. But, you know, that just adds to the experience. Mm -hmm. Adds to the charm. Nice. All right. Well, let's get into the podcast here. Uh, So Ben's going to take us through our paper of the month, and then we've got some tasters of some other literature. So, Ben, tell us about the paper. Yeah, look, we've had a fabulous month this month. So the paper was called Cognitive Load Theory for Debriefing Simulations, Implications for Faculty Development. And it was by Kristen Fraser et al. and published in 2018 in Advances in Simulation. And it's a really uh, nice, practical, really helpful paper um, that sort of explains cognitive load theory both in individual principles, just so if you don't understand at all what it is, it breaks it down, and then also really then looks at it through the lens of debriefing and applies all of their principles involved and how we can kind of become better debriefers by harnessing those skills. So to start with, they talk about uh, the different types of cognitive load, so extraneous, intrinsic, and germane. And for those of you who aren't familiar, extraneous is really kind of the cognitive load that involves distraction from the actual learning point. So sort of noise in the scenario or the debrief um, that's sort of impairing our ability to actually get to what we wanted to achieve. And then we have the intrinsic load, and that's really sort of the bare minimum brain power that you really need to achieve understanding of the actual learning point. And then sort of sometimes defined as part of intrinsic load and sometimes defined separately is this concept of germane load, which is sort of the effort involved in sorting new knowledge into a framework for long-term learning. And once they explain those principles, they then look sort of outline causes and mitigating strategies for each of them within the debriefing environment. So, for example, when they talk about extraneous load in debriefing, they uh, advise things like uh, streamlined instructional design, having a good pre-brief, getting a good physical room layout so that people are sort of comfortable and engaging with you appropriately, and doing some advanced planning with your co-debriefer. 
when they look at the intrinsic load, they argue that this you know gets lower with experience as it does with most things. But it's also helped if you're a beginner by things like smaller group size or debriefing using debriefing cognitive aids and scripts, making sure that you've got the right time allocated for what you need to do, and feeling free to use content experts rather than feeling like you've got to have all the knowledge yourself and making sure that you can share the decision-making about the conversation with the learners themselves. And then lastly, they look at germane load, and that's really sort of where you're going to be trying to take the learning that you've got out of that debrief and harnessing it for future endeavours. So they talk about things like uh, facilitated reflection, feedback, and I guess just having a general sense of mindfulness about what you're doing and reflecting on it after the debrief itself. You really like this paper, Vic. I think you'd uh, recommended it to me last year. Yes. Well, I am increasingly convinced about the relevance of the concept of cognitive load for debriefing. And I think to sort of uh, extend a couple of your points, the intrinsic cognitive load of any task is just what it takes to, uh, as you said, the bare processes. And when it lists out the things that are the intrinsic load of debriefing, it's a long list. Recall what happened Mm. in the scenario, prioritize topics for discussion, formulate questions, listening to learner responses, categorize responses, ensure the teaching effective, manage learner emotions. If you think about all the things that you're doing as a debriefer at once, it's a wonder anything comes out of anyone's mouth (laughs) because it's actually really hard. Yeah. Uh, and I think um, you're right. We've thought about this in terms of the experience of our learners, but I think it's just as important as the experience of us as debriefers. Uh, one of the other things, though, that I think is sometimes hard to explain about cognitive load is this idea that one person's extraneous load is another person's germane load. What do I mean by that? Extraneous load is not helpful. It is noise that complicates signal, and it's the bit that is the added noise in a scenario for our learners or added noise in a debrief for us. But germane load is what some people sometimes call about desirable difficulties. So this actually is the bit that learners, for instance, find hard and difficult, but it's because it's really cementing the learning. And uh, so I think what might be over the top and become uh, too difficult for some learners actually then is really well targeted for other learners because it's right at that edge of of learning and I think the same for our debriefers. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. Like, uh, for example, something like dealing with the emotional participant might be something that's really quite overwhelming in and of itself when you're starting towards learning debriefing but then when you've become comfortable with the structure and you're really engaging uh with the people who've participated in the scenario actually some of that emotion can create a more engaging experience for you as a debriefer and also yeah push those skills a little bit harder great example great so we had a really nice uh discussion this month and i think um probably one of the things that came out is it's really what you mentioned about different people's extraneous, germane and intrinsic load uh, being different for different people because certainly there was a breadth of experience and perspective shared this month that I think reflected that we're all in different sort of stages of that journey towards mastering debriefing. In terms of identifying two primary themes, the ones that uh, sort of resonated for me were that really cognitive strain is a fundamental part of the journey towards mastering debriefing, that that's normal. 
Um, and secondly, that experts and beginners really identify different types of extraneous load. Um, so, you know, when it comes to this fundamental challenge towards debriefing, Susan Eller and Anne Mullen began the, began the discussion with a really lovely contextualization of cognitive load theory within debriefing. And they really emphasize that this is normal, that it's common challenge and that interventions such as understanding the basic structure, utilizing something like the Pearls tool, tool or having a co-debriefer can be really useful for the novice. Um, interestingly, Susan also identified that some of those tools can create their own extraneous load if you're not familiar with it yourself. So she summed up things nicely with her statement. She said, I think one of the things that I try to teach new debriefers is that cognitive load exists in debriefing. I can't tell you how many times I will hear new facilitators say they didn't realize that it was challenging. So many times they're trying to anticipate answers and formulate the next Pulitzer Prize winning question that they can miss profound insights that come from what the participants are saying. If they can offload some of the cognition by having an aid, that is great. And the cognitive aid should also say, be present, listen to the participants. It's okay not to address every single thing in debriefing, as it's usually not a one-time event. And Anne kind of unpacked that a little bit further by making the comparison between achieving mastery in clinical examination uh, versus in debriefing. And she says, I think that this could be compared to a clinician learning to do a history and physical exam. In the beginning, we rely on tools and cognitive aids and with experience and feedback, we know how to do that with little mental effort. Debriefers need clear learning objectives and a vision of ideal performance and cognitive aids to support them, just as a preceptor gives feedback to a trainee. Debriefers need to have ongoing support while they hone their skills. And I think really, for me, a couple of things that resonated from those statements um, was very much that journey and um, sort of the experience that people have in the sheer difficulty of being present in those conversations when you're trying to manage all of those intrinsic tasks that you listed out, Vic, um, but how actually unloading that by focusing less on the structure at a certain point and focusing more on just listening and engaging with people in the conversation can actually be a really useful uh, way of letting go of some of that extraneous load. But you need to have the baseline stuff kind of uh, dealt with first. Yes, and I think this explains why some people feel quite awkward when they start to apply either conversational techniques or a structure to what previously had been a natural conversation. Uh, and I think one of the questions that's listed for areas of future research in the paper is quite relevant here. Does the use of debriefing assessment tools before or after debriefing increase extraneous load or optimize germane load i.e is it a good way of helping to make sense of how well your debriefing is going or does it just add to the pressure of feeling like you have to do the debriefing the right way quote unquote and i think that's a, a great example of what you just described yeah there's a lot of internal pressure here that people put on themselves completely understandably and it, it's somewhat mystified sometimes and I think it's nice getting to a point where you feel comfortable just having a friendly conversation with each other about interesting stuff. So I guess uh, drilling down on that a little bit, um, it certainly seemed to me that experts and beginners sort of identified different types of extraneous load. So a number of experts listed challenges um, 
that they'd seen their trainees experience, but then they identified quite different things to themselves. So while beginners were concerned primarily with structure, technology issues, question formation, and their own level of expertise, um, experts certainly seem to describe more concerns about dealing with emotion or facilitating departmental politics or the flow of the course as a whole over over the whole day if you've got a simulation in the middle of it, and really focusing on establishing meaningful rapport with participants. Uh, Sarah Jansen's described one experience where she said, as I read this with a glass of wine in my hand after a long day of the first version of our new program, it touches on so many aspects of my day. The intrinsic load was high due to the unfamiliar scenarios, even though I wrote many of them, implementation of uh, rapid cycle deliberate practice scenarios and not being able to anticipate the usual participant performance. With the extrinsic load of managing the day, onboarding other faculty, and considering content revision, it's not surprising to me that on reflection, I didn't once today think at how I could improve myself as an educator. I think that's a fairly fairly sort of relatable experience. But I think when we kind of list out all of the things that we're doing uh, during these learning conversations, it's uh, it surprises me how much is going on. Yeah, no, I think that was a really lovely example of Sarah's and uh, you're right, it's easy to concentrate on just getting it done and improvement does feel like the icing on the cake. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Let's just survive. So I was lucky enough to have you, Vic, suggest Jack Machulik, uh for our expert opinion this month. And I am so, so super grateful because I've got a little intellectual crush going on after reading his expert opinion. So Jack uh, has a clinical background in intensive care and pre-hospital nursing and postgraduate adult critical care qualifications. And uh, he likes translating behavioral economics concepts to all aspects of healthcare from policy through to clinical decision-making. He's currently completing postgraduate behavioral economics training through Queensland University of Technology and beginning to look at the effect of cognitive load on CPR quality as a research project. Um, so all, fa- all fairly lowbrow stuff. Um, and um, Jack really provided us with a fascinating perspective drawn from his experience in behavioral economics. And he looks at the tension inherent in cognitive load and high-complexity debriefing and makes the argument that they should really be considered in terms of opportunity costs. Um, and if anyone's not familiar with that term, it's uh, how do I find it? It's kind of like acknowledging that for every decision we make, the opportunity cost is all of the other things that we could have done if we'd made a different decision. Um, well done, Ben. That's exactly what it is. Thanks, and man. I would never have thought to put it as well as you just did. <laughs> Cheers. So, uh, look, the. Jack says that the outcome from operating within this kind of economic framework is really sorting cognitive wheat from the chaff to find two things. Firstly, what is cognitively taxing but worthwhile improving? And then secondly, what is cognitively taxing but can be safely culled? So applying this concept for him will look like regularly taking stock of what disproportionately consumes his cognitive load as a debriefer and then making concerted effort to improving the areas that are valuable to learners and mitigating the rest. So, for example, we talked a bit about video debriefing and some people find that really technologically taxing, uh, that it sometimes doesn't work. Um, And so that is... uh, something that for a lot of people they've kind of just phased out of their debriefing because they don't find it helpful or in other words the opportunity cost for them has meant that the impact on them as a debriefer uh, is 
not worth the potential theoretical benefits of showing the learners the video. And Jack points out yes, that with I feel like the behavioral economics I feel like the behavioral economics thing is kind of like the cool topic around in leadership and med ed at the moment. So I'm not at all surprised that uh, Jack found a way to apply it to debriefing. Yeah, and it really works for me. It really yeah, sat really nicely in terms of the the concepts behind cognitive load. I really appreciated his thoughts. Um, and then once Jack sort of established that economic stance on the material, he then does this really lovely exploration of everybody's comments from this month's Journal Club online and kind of shares his own perspective on their comments and then really deep dives and value adds to them in such a wonderful manner. So incredibly grateful uh, to Jack for coming along this month and he's had a crazy busy month rolling out electronic medical records at uh, is it at, uh, Gold Coast University Hospital. So very much thank you to his time. Yes, definitely worth the read. And uh, But I think easy to pick up on a well-chosen paper and well-facilitated discussion, Ben. Thank you. Yeah, and uh, I hope uh, please do download our PDF that we link because Jack's uh, commentary is really well worth it. You're listening to Simulcast. Excellent. Well, uh, from Cognitive Load, are we ready to move on to some learner experiences? Absolutely. All right, well, for the next of our little extra papers, uh, the first one is a commentary, and this is in the journal Medical Education in this month, and the title of it is Simulation, The Power of What Hurts by Daniel Turton and colleagues. And interestingly, this is a commentary on a paper that we reviewed in last month's February Simulcast Journal Club. So the paper we reviewed then was uh, Margaret Bierman's study on learner experiences. And uh, listeners might recall that that was drawn from a really large database of people who'd participated in the NETSIM program here in Australia and a analysis of their experiences as learners. And one of the things that was highlighted and that has become the focus of this commentary in this month's Medical Education Journal is the idea about experiencing error as potentially causing damage. And uh, I guess this is familiar to anyone who has been involved in simulation, either as a learner or as a facilitator. And, you know, we'd like to think we're having these direct and nice conversations, but for a whole variety of reasons, we shy away from sometimes having tough conversations. And uh, I'm going to quote something from their paper now. Uh, Beerman et al. recommend that as a response, we might focus on things going right in simulation as much as we already do on things going wrong. And I think that is certainly an agenda that uh, we've heard a fair bit talked about. They also mentioned the learning from success that we reviewed with Peter Diekman. Uh, however, they make the point that there's a whole lot of reasons why we don't make the most of mistakes that happen in simulation because of our discomfort with it, our fear of alienating learners, and they really start to say, hmm, but we really have to go there if we're going to get the most out of it. So I thought it was a nice setting out, Ben, of uh, all those reasons why we don't go there with the mistakes. Did you um, find that a useful description? Um, I found it a really kind of refreshing reality check on maybe the contrast between what I say and what I do. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, there's things here about 
how I think we rationalize what we do about how, oh, we're concentrating on success and we're saying that any failure is obviously a team failure and I can see myself talking all about this and ways to avoid uh, going deep on an individual who may actually have made an error. Yeah, absolutely. I think we the pendulum can swing a bit too far away to the point where uh, people know that they've just made a mistake, but uh, we rationalize it away to the point that they can't actually explore what they've done wrong and correct it themselves. Yes. Yeah, so where they get to in the end, and I'll go back into the middle of the beginning, but what they are really recommending is that we need to seize the opportunity in debriefs to ask not only the safe questions, what works, but also the challenging ones too, what hurts. They argue that whatever we do, we're still going to get a personal and emotional response. But I think they also further argue that we sort of have to do that anyway. And that sort of does fly in the face of some of the accepted wisdom about how to uh, explore, you know, behaviors and, uh, sorry, frames rather than behaviors and some of the other strategies that I guess many of us have looked to as a way of dealing with these uncomfortable conversations. I'm not sure I necessarily know exactly how to do it further, Ben, but like you, it's been a bit of a useful uh, wake-up call. Yeah, I thought it was sort of an important call to arms about how maybe we need to embrace failure as an element of learning sometimes and that ignoring the positive impact of failing um, in terms of how it can help our future performance can really sabotage our learning goals in some ways. Uh, One of the things that I thought was interesting and I don't know if you remember, Ben, but I kind of picked up on this because in the original Beerman article, they talk about transforming thinking from failure to thinking about fallibility. And I think I flagged that this was probably the next research agenda for that group. Yes, uh, I do remember that. The Beerman article. And I think that was definitely picked up by this group as well. So we look forward to watching the agenda with interest because I think we all um, are keen to get a variety of strategies for dealing with the uh, failures and errors and how we can transform them into useful learning. Yeah, and I think that's the key there is sort of learning to have more options in your tool belt rather than one having to be right all of the time. Um, Certainly looking at the work you and Eve have done in terms of um, the impact on culture of simulation, for example, I don't know that necessarily I would need to dig deep into somebody's uh, personal error in a simulation to necessarily get those benefits. So I think it will really depend on why we're doing a particular sim and what learning we're actually wanting to get out of this from an individual group and then um, organisational level. Just another challenge for our cognitive load. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, on that note, I'm going to go on to our next paper. You're listening to Simulcast. Uh, Now, keeping in the theme of learner experience, uh, this paper is titled Learner Experiences During Rapid Cycle Deliberate Practice Simulations, a Qualitative Analysis, and this is by Chansey et al. in the February issue of Simulation in Healthcare, and this is a group for the Baylor College of Medicine, Texas Children's Hospital. And essentially what they did is looked at, this was a qualitative study of how the participants perceived Uh, participating in these RCDP simulations during their pediatric emergency medicine rotation. So it was basically surveys plus interviews, which they analysed qualitatively. 
So uh, I know we've spoken about rapid cycle deliberate practice here and you uh, interviewed Bram at IMSH about this. But uh, for those, just to recap on that, and I'm going to use some of the words because they do do a nice description here, rapid cycle deliberate practice teaches resuscitation by taking less time for reflective post-event debriefing and giving more time to deliberate repetitive practice and mastery-based escalation of difficulty. So what does that mean in practice? Instead of having a uh, 10 to 15-minute scenario followed by a 20 to 30-minute debrief, this is a short, sharp uh, period of scenario or experience followed by a micro debrief with rapid corrective action towards clear expected performance. Go back and do it again, usually layering in just one other level of required performance and then having another micro debrief and then going back and doing it again and each time just layering in a little bit more expectation so that people have this repetition of the basics and then progressively more challenge in their scenario but getting multiple episodes of short sharp feedback and in fact if you've sort of ever wondered exactly how that looks in a resuscitation scenario the figure one in this paper is just great as showing the um, stepwise sequence of resuscitation skills that they've got in five rounds of rapid cycle deliberate practice uh, I don't know if you had such a good understanding of it Ben but I found actually this paper just helped me really see what an rapid cycle deliberate practice looked like in good hands yeah it's a lovely snapshot all right so i guess this makes educational sense uh for men in many ways but what do learners actually think is what they sought to answer here and what they did was they uh involved 44 nurses and residents i.e trainees uh they took them through two scenarios both a pulseless electrical activity and one that had a shockable rhythm and uh, they asked them, and they had a couple of interesting methods, but one of the things they did in their survey, they asked them when did the learning take place in these periods of scenario and interruption, and they gave them a 100 points and they could distribute the points between various parts of the activity. So, for instance, you could put 50 points on the debriefing and 50 points on the scenario, uh, which I thought was a nice little method. Uh, but then they also did some interviews and asked people a little bit more in depth about what their experience had been. Uh, the results, unsurprisingly, I think, most of the learners described that they thought the learning took place in those uh, micro debrief sessions and they actually liked the interruptions and various themes that came out about the repetition really helping with the success, the idea of having smaller chunks of information and interestingly actually getting still good an idea about peer and team learning. Um, which I found probably the more surprising part of this because otherwise this experience seems to me very more instructor-driven, but obviously they're still getting a lot of the benefits of peer and team learning. And there were some comments about the comparison with traditional and they also were very happily reporting that some people did prefer uh, the more so-called traditional approach. But as with many of these things, and back to your comments on the earlier article, it just depends a little bit on what you're trying to achieve. Uh, what did you think, Ben? Yeah, it's. I really enjoyed this paper because I think that a lot of the rapid cycle deliberate practice publications um, are kind of appropriately focused on quantitative outcomes, like 
you know, uh, Betsy's publication originally, you know, saying, look, we did this and we had hard, finite outcomes in skills improvement, which makes sense given that this was a technique sort of designed deliberately to uh, sort of hammer home motor skills and um, resuscitative skills specifically um, rather than uncover frames. And so it was an, a nice sort of different perspective to look at this through a qualitative lens and really assess a little bit more about what the learner's experience was. I'd have to say the the written survey for me was nightmare fuel. So they're the, the having to rank eight things but giving them an individual score and then the number had to add up to 100. That to me was I would end up picking easy numbers to fit that rather than what I actually thought the score was for each of those. So, um I enjoyed the there you go extraneous cognitive yeah, load for no, you, that's too much. For me. That is that is opportunity cost. That is cold. Bang straight away. Simple maths gone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nothing wrong with rounding up or down. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. Yeah, but but like you, I and maybe I'm just a bit more interested in that. But I thought the comments were really interesting to read. Oh, me too. And yeah. Not all of them were surprising, I suppose, but it was really interesting to see what do those learners actually experience rather than what do they think we what do we think they experience or think they should experience. Yeah, and really good stuff just even in terms of how much they valued the instructor's uh, expertise and feedback over sometimes their colleagues because certainly that would be a cliche that we are often taught on some courses is that, you know, we all value the feedback of our peers more than we value the instructors sometimes. So it was nice to I enjoyed seeing that challenged a little bit too. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Mm. I mean, I guess it's worth sort of mentioning clearly rapid cycle deliberate practice is perfect for really well uh, described performance as in in a resuscitation where many of the actions are clear and uh, we are aiming for a end point that there's not too much disagreement about and clearly this might not be quite as good if you are looking for some other learning outcomes where there might be different ways of getting to the same place. Yeah, absolutely. You're listening to Simulcast. All right, and then we'll go on to our last paper and this is completely left field, not at all related to the other two, but uh, I just feel like often we talk about debriefing and scenario-based training. So I've chosen a paper here more related to procedural and surgical simulation and the title of this paper is can haptic simulators distinguish expert performance a case study in central venous catheterization in surgical education and this is by chen et al simulation in healthcare february 2019 and this is a group mainly based at uh, penn state university in the united states and uh, to give a little bit of a <coughs> overview to this, we have talked a little bit about procedural simulation here at Simulcast, particularly as it relates to learning point-of-care ultrasound. I did that uh, session with the Jefferson Ultrasound Group uh, in January, uh, but also thinking about many ways that we have currently learned procedural sedation, sorry, procedural simulation, things like having airway part-task trainers, uh, central line part-task trainers. But of course, anyone who's used those things knows that there are 
issues with the traditional way we've done it. The plastic doesn't feel very realistic. The touch of it isn't right. And by the way, then you learn some tricks that are particularly relevant to the particular mannequin because you know about the angles that are needed for this particular piece of plastic and it's the same every time. So uh, enter new technology and you've got probably a couple of things that software and hardware combinations now allow. So one is just getting a better tactile feedback in doing a procedure. So they've got a lovely picture in this of what they're going to test, which is the dynamic haptic robotic trainer. I bet you wish you had one of those. Uh, But they've got a great (laughs) picture. And they've got a great picture of that where in your right hand you're holding an instrument that is on a series of robotic arms so you can move it in three-dimensional space. And then you're looking at a screen and that's giving you the visual feedback. Your hand that's holding this little arm thing here actually gets touch and feel feedback. So if you hit bone with your instrument, it feels really hard. If you hit something soft like skin, you can potentially push your virtual needle through it. And in the case of this simulator, your left hand is then holding the ultrasound that's helping you to localise the vein for your central line insertion. So this new technology allows you visual feedback, touch feedback, but perhaps uh, two other things. It allows you to incorporate variation into your challenge so you can set up different kinds of anatomy in the software. That means you may have to use different strategies to achieve the same uh, procedural success. And the last thing that it's got that's relevant to this study is an ability to track your hand movement while you do this. Now, so this concept of path length, i.e. if you're trying to get a needle from point A to point B, how many different ways do you have to wiggle it around? And although imperfect, it would seem that novices tend to need to wiggle things around a lot more than experts who tend to take a nice smooth approach and just go, bang, there it is. And I guess we kind of know this from clinical practice intuitively, but now with motion tracking of hand movements, we can measure it. So you with me here, Ben? Sounds like a good scheme. Yeah, absolutely. It and it sort of turns into an interesting way to kind of reverse engineer what makes up expertise. Exactly, which nicely brings us to the study. So, having uh, got this simulator, I'll just say it again: the <laughs> dynamic haptic robotic trainer. <laughs> They've uh, then taken two groups. They've got 13 novices and they were first-year surgical trainees and 11 experts who were surgeons and they used this simulator and each uh, participant in the study completed a series of 10 central line insertions. Now, it was part of a bigger study, but this is what they did for the purpose of this specific investigation. And they measured a variety of metrics as to how well the participants performed this central line insertion on this simulator. But the main ones that I think are probably relevant for us were just the time to complete the procedure and then how far the needle tip moved, this path length. Uh, They did a variety of stats that I'm just going to have to believe were well done. Um, And I'm not going to go into the details of those here, but the findings were probably not surprising to some extent. The experts did do better. They tended to move the needle tip less. They tended to complete the task more 
more quickly uh, and didn't actually have any learning curve over the series that they did, whereas the novices um, didn't do as well as the experts on average, but they also had a nicely uh, evident sort of learning curve of they were improving in their ability to achieve this procedure smoothly and quickly uh, over time on the simulator. So I guess their conclusion is, yes, the simulator is helps us to distinguish expertise, but it also helps us to uh, track a learning curve of an individual or a cohort. So I guess, Ben, not surprising, but I think at this point people are looking to sort of validate uh, for want of a better word, these uh, newer simulators and they're also t- seeking to know how best to apply them to which level of user. Yeah, and I think um, I was certainly convinced by the paper and uh, particularly by the fact that they make the argument that the experts don't learn, um, which I hadn't thought about before as a strategy for sort of assessing expertise because I would have thought that if you're an expert at something, you would still learn the technology and get somewhat more proficient because given that it isn't exactly the same skill. Um, But it was interesting. Yeah, and to my mind, that probably means that this is closer to reality than a lot of the things that we've had before Yeah, because it probably means that they started out pretty much where they are on a real patient and stayed there. Yeah, it's certainly tra- that that would seem to be certainly the argument that they are kind of making, isn't it? And it mm. seems valid. Yeah. Anyway, I think watch this space. I think this is the kind of technology that will be coming to us fairly soon uh, because I don't know the exact price points, but I think it's getting to the level where it's going to be certainly within the realm of possibilities of departments to have these sorts of simulators to practice these skills uh, for individuals and pairs of people. And I think I'll be curious as well as to how that additional knowledge of how experts move can be translated into useful teaching for novices because I personally find it very hard to translate dexterity type skills um, and explain them to junior doctors sometimes. And I certainly, if I tried to break down how I cannulate a neonate, for example, I couldn't do it to you. Like, it, but I can do it, but I have no idea what my fingers are really doing anymore. So, um, mm. it'd be interesting to see if they're able to translate some of that information. Yes. Well, I've actually seen a similar study with airway management looking at this same path length and motion. And, uh, they describe a very similar thing with the learning curves. But I've also seen something done with colonoscopy, which both tracked what the expert colonoscopist did, but then also did an interview later with all of them about what was going through their head as they did certain strategies oh, to try and optimise. Yeah, and I think that sort of combination of uh, investigation, so this was, I might try and look it up for another time, uh, David Hewitt's um, work at the University of Queensland where he combined those two things to really try and understand what do experts do when they make decisions intra-procedure, as it were, about where they're going to go and what they're going to do next. Mm, Oh, that sounds fascinating. But in the meantime, what is happening in the April Journal Club? Yeah, so I am uh, trying something a little different next month in that I'm 
open disclosure, I'm probably choosing an article that I most strongly disagree with. Uh, but I think we don't grow if we don't listen to alternative viewpoints, hey? So, um, How adult of you? <laughs> or petty. We'll see how it comes how it comes out. Um, but the article that we're going to look at was published in 2017 in the Archives of Disease in Ch- Childhood, and it's called The Impact of Child Death on Pediatric Trainees, and not ostensibly a simulation article per se. It's by uh, Hollingsworth et al. And essentially, as clinical event debriefing gains traction in hospitals around the globe, some clinicians are really warning us about the potential harms from having these learner conversations in the context of patient deaths. And in this article, um, Hollingsworth et al. explore the psychological impact of real pediatric death on pediatric trainees. Uh, But in doing so, they come to a conclusion and a recommendation about attending a debrief, a single debrief following child death and voice concern that it may be associated with symptoms of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, So it was... Wow. Okay. Yeah. Look out this month. So it uh, may get a little bit spicy in the comments. We will see. But um, a really interesting uh, viewpoint that is worth listening to and having a think about. All right, well, we shall um, have that up in the next couple of days and uh, don't forget www.simulationpodcast.com. Go there, have a look at the paper, see what comments are already there and add some of your own. Yeah, absolutely. And we've got Uh, Stuart Rose is going to be our expert this month, so I'm very excited. I think you're on safe ground there in terms of whether he agrees with you or not. uh, (laughs) we'll We'll see if everybody else is the same. Don't show the man behind the curtain, Vic. No, that's it. That's it. All right, Ben. Well, it's been a pleasure as usual. Uh, We look forward to the discussion and talking next month. Absolutely. All right. You have a good month. You're listening to Simulcast.